So let's talk about the next patient you met with. So I met this next patient when she was 32 years old, and actually in November of 2012, she felt a breast mass on self-exam. She had no insurance, and she is a Chinese-American immigrant, so she went on the internet to learn about what it means to have a breast mass. On the internet, she learned that this could be cancer and that it can spread to the lymph nodes, so she reached her hand to her axilla, and indeed, there was an even larger mass in her axilla. By February, she saw a primary care physician, had a biopsy, and was referred on for oncology care, and it was then that I met her. When I met her, she had a six-centimeter breast mass, a six-centimeter axillary mass. She had a needle biopsy of both of these areas, indeed high-grade disease in both places, but interestingly, her ER was positive, PR negative. She was two-plus by IHC, And by fish, she was negative at 1.7. Because of her age, she also had genetic testing, and unfortunately, it was BRCA2 positive. So we treated her with neoadjuvant therapy. She received AC followed by T, had a very good clinical response, and went to the operating room where she had bilateral mastectomy. The contralateral prophylactic side was negative, but on the side of her disease, she still had a small amount of tumor in the breast, perhaps eight millimeters, and residual DCIS. She had a sentinel node that was negative, and then we went on and had a completion axillary dissection where three of eight lymph nodes were positive. That actually would be an interesting, and it may not be where you want to go, but what we do with people that are sentinel node negative following neoadjuvant therapy. That mastectomy specimen was once again tested, still ERPR positive, but by IHC was three plus positive. We tried to obtain fish on the mastectomy specimen, but it was a technical failure in the lab and we were unable to obtain a fish result. She had chest wall radiation, but with this three plus IHC, after her chest wall radiation, she was placed on trastuzumab. So gotta say, a kind of scary story here. Beth, you want to comment on it? Yeah. So I'm seeing more and more of this type of situation, and I'm not sure how best to approach it. You know, this is clearly cancer is heterogeneous. And I think that we're just deluding ourselves when we say, oh, this biopsy is representative of a six centimeter mass and axillary lymph nodes. It can't possibly be. It gives us some direction, but it's not a uniform disease. Is that your interpretation of what's going on here, that the testing was most likely accurate? It's just there was tumor heterogeneity? I do, yes. That's my impression, to be frank with you. Only because I have seen this. We see large tumors where, depending upon where the biopsy is, you can have negative HER2 versus positive HER2, and then we sit in tumor board saying, well, is 20% of the cancer HER2 positive? You know, what is the magic number that says that the cancer is going to be driven by HER2 stimulation. So we see this actually a lot. And I will tell you for two minutes a story recently that I had that makes me even more sort of respectful of this process. A patient had a core biopsy, was FISH negative, IHC2+. Our pathologist looked at the core, did not see membranous staining, but saw cytoplasmic staining of HER2 and felt this is worrisome. She subsequently had a lumpectomy, axillary lymph node dissection, node negative. They requested the lumpectomy specimen. 
Now, you and I, standard, we have this on a core. This is, you know, in a small tumor. Now, this is not a six centimeter tumor, but in a small tumor, you wouldn't necessarily repeat these markers. But because of this cytoplasmic expression, they repeated it. Lo and behold, there was a great area of cytoplasmic expression of HER2, and they did SISH, and there was uniform overexpression of HER2. And so it really did change the treatment for this particular patient. So I think that detecting HER2 is becoming much more nuanced. So this lady also brings up the issue of neoadjuvant therapy and particularly HER2 positive disease, where we saw now for the first time an FDA approval of an agent in the neoadjuvant setting of breast cancer, pertuzumab. So Beth, can you talk a little bit about what went on there in the background to the FDA decision and how you're approaching HER2 positive disease in the adjuvant setting, what you would have done with this lady if you had a positive HER2 result before she was treated? So just briefly in terms of the background, it all started really with the Cleopatra trial that showed a superior progression-free survival when pertuzumab was added to trastuzumab and docetaxel in metastatic disease. In fact, some, I guess it was the second interim analysis that actually shows some small survival benefit also. And then Neosphere was presented, and Neosphere was a very interesting study for many reasons, but it also compared, it was a forearm trial, comparing trastuzumab, docetaxel versus pertuzumab, docetaxel versus pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and then all three chemotherapy, and then the two HER-directed therapies. And the primary endpoint being PATH-CR rate, that the doublet, the two HER2-directed therapies, pertuzumab and trastuzumab with docetaxel, had a superior PATH-CR rate. That study, I think, as well as maybe some supportive study from the Trifena trial, which looked at cardiac toxicity as a primary endpoint, really prompted the FDA to go forward and approve pertuzumab as preoperative therapy in the setting of HER2-positive disease. Some of us feel it was a little premature. The regimens that were really explored were single-agent taxanes and then anthracyclines following the surgery, so not something that we tend to use preoperatively in the United States. In addition, one thing that we were talking about this morning was that post-neoadjuvant therapy, patients did not continue on pertuzumab. They just continued on trastuzumab. So you know, how long do you use pertuzumab preoperatively? Also, I guess the FDA really just approved it being used pre-op. Exactly. Not post-op. Not post-op. So, and then the question that we raise as clinicians is, well, is it preoperatively for three months, preoperatively for four months? You know, how does duration play into this? So I think that there's a lot of unanswered questions. However, it is now approved. And so we struggle with it in our group So we always get together and try to reanalyze and come up with a practice plan. And I think the majority of us feel that in large tumors or inflammatory breast cancer, certainly in this setting with this particular patient, six centimeter mass, five centimeter axillary mass, she would receive pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and chemotherapy. Now, we have a tendency to actually give taxanes with the HER2-directed therapy preoperatively and then give the anthracycline postoperatively. 
based, you know, I guess on the international kind of approach to this disease, but that would be how we would treat her off of a clinical trial. I guess we should also say, too, that that FDA approval was also contingent on seeing positive results in the future in the adjuvant setting. Correct. We're adding in pertuzumab, and we have the big affinity trial out there that's going to look at that. I guess that's basically chemo, trastuzumab, plus or minus pertuzumab. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. And any thoughts about when we might get some answers there? You know, I have not heard. I have not heard at all, to tell you the truth. So I can't comment on it. No one seems to think it's sometime soon. Let me put it that way. Great. Bonnie, anything else you want to say about this lady? Any observations on her as a person? Well, I think as a person, she's very interesting. First of all, she's very young at the time of her diagnosis. She had, as I mentioned, bracket testing, and she was positive. And I think her being an immigrant, being diagnosed with a locally advanced breast carcinoma, being BRCA positive would be quite enough to contend with. Additionally, she had been newly married and she had two-year-old twins when she was diagnosed. And unfortunately, the marriage did not survive that diagnosis. And in fact, in the first few months taking care of her, her husband was in the home, out of the home, but interestingly, always out of work. And financially, this was hard. It was hard for her to come in and even get gas money to make it to appointments. Now, you know, a year or two later, her children are now in preschool. She moved home with her parents. And, you know, it's interesting today seeing her not necessarily on an on-treatment visit, but having the opportunity to sort of step back and chat with her. She reminded us that, you know, when I was first diagnosed, I was all about having my surgery and having my port placed and getting my chemotherapy. And and now I'm in this sort of maintenance phase and she's just now starting to think about what life is going to be like for her. She's starting to think about dating. She starts to think about now that she has time with her children in school, who is she and what does she want to do? And it's a real time of sort of coming of age in a sense, even though she's 32 years old. Any observations on her or comments on her, Beth? Yeah, that was very striking, especially since, you know, we have this issue with her BRCA2 mutation. So she's at risk for fallopian tube ovarian cancer. And without having a good screening strategy for this disease, it's recommended that they have a risk-reducing bilateral sapingo-oophorectomy. And so one thing that we brought up was, what are her plans to go forward with that? And she actually brought up children even though we're dealing with a locally advanced ER-positive, HER2-positive disease. So a disease that sort of behooves itself to continue with targeted therapy indefinitely, really. You know, a year of trastuzumab, 10 years of tamoxifen. We're talking long-term ongoing therapy, difficult to put a pregnancy in that time course. So that was very interesting to talk about. You know, we talked about the other controversial thing that I wanted to bring up about the bilateral subpingoophorectomy is that she does have a locally advanced disease. And the whole question is, does ovarian ablation at this point offer her a systemic advantage, not just a risk-reducing, you know, second cancer benefit? And there really are no data to support that. I think a lot of us feel that in these type of high-risk cancers, especially in such a young woman, that maybe removing the ovaries would offer her some advantage in terms of reducing the risk of recurrence. So there are two factors that make me want to talk to her about, let's get the ovaries out. And yet, 
true to form. I can't say it's absolutely medically necessary right now. And she has a long time to go in terms of her mind and coming to terms with removing those ovaries. Interesting. Bonnie? I just had a question. Seeing that she ultimately is being viewed as a HER2 positive patient, but didn't get trastuzumab in the preoperative setting, and knowing that she still had a fair amount of disease at surgery, is she a person that you would say, she's not a true adjuvant, and I would continue her trastuzumab longer than a year? Good question. Yes, it's optimal to give that trastuzumab when she had her chemotherapy, but we still have the HERA trial that still supports an added benefit in the adjuvant setting of giving a year of trastuzumab following chemotherapy. And that's a good study, actually, to support that rationale in terms of your question, because that compared a year of trastuzumab versus two years of trastuzumab. So again, longer versus shorter. And there was no advantage to longer. But realize that I can't hang my hat that I had a pathologic CR with even chemo plus trastuzumab. My chemo was, to at least some extent, a failure. So this is not just three positive nodes. This is three tough nodes that made it through dose-dense therapy. So the question is, though, what was the likelihood in an ER-positive cancer that you were going to obtain a PATH-CR, even if it was a HER2-positive? So this is sort of a luminal B. How often do we actually achieve a PATH-CR with luminal Bs? Not as high. And so it's not unexpected that she should have residual disease. It's unclear whether this reflects her long-term outcome in terms of disease-free survival and overall survival. You know, we have, at least from the meta-analysis from Germany, where they looked at the different subtypes and sort of try to correlate the disease-free survival with PATH-CR rate, and they found that it really correlated very nicely with triple negative, HER2-positive. When you start getting into the ER-positive, that's where we may not be able to correlate the outcome with the PATH-CR rate. Would you feel different if she wasn't 90% ER positive, but 10% ER positive? Yes, I would feel a little more concerned about her outcome, to be frank with you, because I would have expected a better response. On the other hand, I still am very pleased that we found her HER2 positive disease and that she's being treated now with HER2 directed therapy. But I would not put her into a metastatic classification. I may put her into a high risk classification, but not a metastatic. So I wouldn't necessarily keep that trastuzumab on indefinitely. So I know that we don't have an actual adjuvant HER2 case here today, but this patient does bring up, uh, I'm right about that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But was this the person who you asked that question on though, Bonnie, or was it someone else? No, we actually talked about, uh, are you you alluding to pertuzumab? Well, no, actually, I'll tell you what I was going to ask about. It's kind of a side issue, but what were you about to say in terms of pertuzumab? Because you know, like, we I thought that's what you were getting into when you were talking about the fact that it really is not a typical sort so, of NED situation. So now for my high-risk HER2-positive patients, as if there's another kind, but for those that are greater than two centimeters and node-positive, I am anxious to incorporate pertuzumab. And at least at our tumor boards, it's almost as if we are reinvigorated about the prospect of neoadjuvant, believing it's our only path to pertuzumab. And if you did your surgery first, they could never get this potentially very good drug. 
And I asked Beth about the NCCN guidelines. And I remember when pertuzumab was first included in the NCCN guidelines, I noticed that there's a number at the top with a footnote at the bottom that says something on the order of, if your patient did not receive pertuzumab in the neoadjuvant setting, comma, consider giving in the adjuvant setting. And so for my patients that are HER2 positive that didn't get in in the neoadjuvant setting or are now freshly post-op, are they people that we would consider using pertuzumab in some fashion? Beth? I've never used it off-study. I've never known anyone to use it off-study in the adjuvant setting. And when we became aware of the NCCN guidelines, it brought a lot of distress to my colleagues. I actually wanted to ask you a question because I know none of these cases are just sort of a straightforward adjuvant HER2, but there were a couple things that have come out recently in terms of adjuvant therapy of HER2 positive disease. We haven't seen anything too exciting recently, but I thought, first of all, the presentation at San Antonio that came out of your group, Beth, looking at paclitaxel trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting got a lot of attention. So serotonin study with 12 weeks of weekly paclitaxel with trastuzumab adjuvant for sort of low-risk HER2-positive cancers, so, you know, node-negative, et cetera. That study I participated in greatly. It's very well-tolerated. And the outcome were very, I think there were eight recurrences, and I know for a fact that at least two of those recurrences were just contralateral new cancers. So not necessarily, yes, you have to identify them as a recurrence, but not really a recurrence. So patients did extremely well in terms of outcome. Now, it is true, you will never get a randomized trial to compare 12 weeks of paclitaxel and trastuzumab versus, you know, ACTH, for example. But it does make intuitive sense that these low-risk patients may need something. They need chemo, they need trastuzumab, but they don't need the kitchen sink. We actually thought that that study should have exploded everywhere because this is really, in our opinion and the people who I was with, practice changing. So we now have a secondary study called the ATTEMPT trial ongoing, which is a year of TDM1 versus 12 weeks of paclitaxel and trastuzumab followed by trastuzumab to complete one year. So it's, again, for the low risk, it is for the stage one cancers, N0 up to two centimeters. And we'll see what the outcome is. But I think that that really does change a lot. It validates what we believe is true, that they need some chemotherapy, but not a lot. And definitely those patients who have less than a two centimeter tumor don't necessarily need ACT. You wouldn't necessarily give them ACT if they weren't HER2 positive. And that's the rationale that I've always come up with. It's funny you said it was practice changing because to me, the actual existence of the trial was practice changing because I saw investigators, as soon as they sort of heard about the trial and started to put people on it, they just started doing it. Bonnie, what's your usual approach been for adjuvant therapy in a node-negative patient with HER2-positive disease? Our standard regimen would be TCH. I think a few years ago, we were still 50-50 dose-dense, giving trastuzumab with the paclitaxel. I think we're becoming, as the data from the NSABP study becomes more mature, we're becoming more and more comfortable avoiding the anthracyclines and just using TCH. For our low-risk patients, we did not jump on the paclitaxel trastuzumab until the data came out. And now for our low-risk patients or 
patients for which toxicity is an issue. It's sort of TC was the old FAC. So now in the HER2 positive arena, TH is now the equivalent of TC. It's our, you know, kind of less filling, taste great option for and the, those patients. The and, TC is docetaxel and cytoxan. Which TC? Oh, I'm, yeah, yeah, docetaxel, cytoxan for those lymph node negative, HER2 mm-hmm. negative patients mm-hmm. where you don't want to give them a dose dense or a TAC. TH is now the analogous regimen for the HER2 positive. And it's a great option because, as we know, in these patients that are less than one centimeter, maybe they have a seven millimeter tumor, but they're HER2 positive. And you think, gosh, darn it, do I really want to subject this person to dose-dense therapy and alkylators and cardiac toxicity? So the TH becomes a wonderful option Mm -hmm. for them. Although I have to say, you know, looking at that presentation, Beth, and I think this came up immediately as soon as it was presented, I mean, there were quite a few people. This is a one-arm study, mm-hmm. so, you know, it's just an indirect comparison. You know, the great thing was, of course, that, you know, you also saw so few recurrences mm-hmm. and it was so well tolerated. But there were a lot of T1A patients in there. And, you know, you really wonder how many of these people would have relapsed if they had nothing. Right now, you know, a lot of people have used sort of a five-millimeter bar to decide, you know, maybe look at ER. How do you decide whether or not to treat it all, Beth? Right. So... There seems to be a difference, number one, in terms of outcome between the ER positives and the ER negatives, that those patients who have ER negative HER2 positive disease seem to fare worse. So that would be helpful in terms of determining who would get the chemotherapy and trastuzumab. In terms of T1As, and we, again, in our tumor board, go round and round. So how I approach it is I do use the five millimeter as my cutoff, but I also know that somewhere around four, you know, is there a big difference between four and five millimeters? I'm not sure there is. And so when I get to around that size, I say, you know, your risk, yes, in very poor data, retrospective data, no matter what, it can be as high as 30%. When I get down to a one millimeter, then I really take pause to be frank with you. I'd much rather put those patients on a clinical trial so we can follow them But my option for these patients who have one millimeter, two millimeter HER2 positive primaries, regardless of ER status, I will say it's observation versus clinical trial. Truly, as a clinician, paclitaxel and trastuzumab is quite benign. And so if they're very motivated, sure, I'll treat them. But I'm not enthusiastic that I'm actually doing them any good whatsoever. I think there's going to be a lot of interest in this new trial that involves TDM1. Everybody's curious about that concept. First question, just to kind of echo back to some of the things that Bonnie's been asking you today, any situations where you'd attempt to get TDM1 in the adjuvant setting, a 90-year-old person that you just couldn't see giving chemo to, that was ER negative, who would pay for it, for example? I would like to be related to that person, number one, (laughs) if they could pay for it. (laughs) Number two, to be frank with you, no. My approach to adjuvant therapy is it's curable disease. And so I have a tendency not to sway too much outside of guidelines or at least practice, you know, practice among my group, some type of supportive plan. So I would not try to get TDM1 in that setting. So we're going to talk a little bit more about this, but just as long as we brought up the issue of TDM1, I'm curious where things stand today, Beth, in terms of toxicity with TDM1. Of course, this is, as you mentioned, even more of an issue in the adjuvant setting. Now that it's out there, people are using it. 
What's your clinical experience? I'm particularly interested in terms of thrombocytopenia. Have you ever seen any bleeding, the liver function, abnormalities, et cetera? So in terms of the hematologic toxicity, you mentioned the thrombocytopenia, and actually part of our clinical trial now involves a discussion about some patients on other clinical trials who had CNS bleeds. And so I do caution my patients, you know, avoid aspirin, avoid non-steroidals if possible. So things that will predispose to bleeding. And then we monitor platelets like crazy on this drug. So I have not personally had any knock on wood adverse experience in terms of bleeding, but we do follow that closely. What's interesting is that the more we use the drug, the more we see toxicity again that we didn't necessarily see in the clinical trial. So for example, I've had a lot of neutropenia where I've had to use GCSF, you know, some type of cytokine support in that patient population. Fatigue is something that I hadn't seen on the clinical trials and I'm seeing more now. And then I had my first experience of a sensitivity reaction to TDM1. You know, we've all had patients on trastuzumab who have hives and it's not really a hypersensitivity. It's more whatever allergic base, but those patients who have a few hives, oftentimes you can get by by just suppressing that with an H2 blocker, with other type of anti-allergy medications. And for the first time, I've actually seen that in a TDM1 infusion, someone who's just highly allergic. So I think that we still have to keep in mind that this is trastuzumab, no matter what. But I haven't seen the neuropathy. I haven't seen a lot of other toxicity with this drug. It's tolerated quite well. So, What's your experience bonding with the drug? Well, I have not treated many patients with TDM1 yet. One of the patients we met today received it and tolerated well, although unfortunately didn't respond. I have not experienced anybody that had an allergic reaction. They've had some cytopenias, thrombocytopenia, I think for the most part. But it hasn't been a difficult drug at all. In fact, it's been a pleasure to give. It's been very straightforward and very easy to give. Exactly. We were talking about pertuzumab, and as long as we're kind of getting into toxicity of anti-her therapy, I'm curious, again, now that it's been out there for a while, Beth, what you've seen with toxicity there. I actually remember seeing a paper not long after it was approved on dermatologic issues, and then I was asking people, and nobody seems to have seen it. What do you actually see in your patients that you think may be related to pertuzumab? So we have a few studies with pertuzumab, one specifically in inflammatory breast cancer, And so I'm seeing a lot of it. And actually, my biggest concern with pertuzumab is diarrhea. I think we really underestimated what the extent of diarrhea was, especially in older patients. But I've actually had such significant dehydration where I've had renal compromise. So the diarrhea is something not to be minimized. We really need to educate our patient to really get on top of the diarrhea. In terms of the rash, it's interesting Sometimes it reminds me a lot of the paclitaxel rash, you know, this kind of, well, it's an EGF rash actually is what you see with the pertuzumab. So treat it with topical antibiotic and things of that nature, clindamycin, et cetera. The rash is not so prevalent. The diarrhea is definitely something to watch. And otherwise, I've seen nothing spectacular. The only other corollary is, especially when you're giving taxanes with this combination, you're giving your first dose of trastuzumab, your first dose of pertuzumab, and then your first dose of ataxane all in one day. And by the time, it's almost as if you're giving these antibodies over 
three hours, that they really have a much higher incidence of hypersensitivity with their first infusion than I would have thought when you give all three drugs at once. So that's just something to be aware of. That's fascinating. It just for some reason triggered a question that a doc came up to me after a meeting we did recently and asked, and I promised I'd ask somebody about it, which is the question of the patient who's had a taxane in the adjuvant setting, paclitaxel, and had neuropathy from it, you know, as a significant problem, who then develops metastatic disease. And the question being, can you use pertuzumab and trastuzumab with chemotherapy other than a taxane? Well, you're not allowed, according to the FDA, but can you, you know, there's the VELVET trial that's looking at those two, her two directed therapies with vinaralbine. And so that's going to kind of put things at rest. But to my, you know, I'm just predicting, but there's no real difference between pertuzumab and trastuzumab. So I'm sure that it's going to be as effective with every other drug. We do have a study with pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and aribulin. So within the next year, you'll have enough data that everyone is going to be using it with all the normal drugs, I feel. 